Hey, Carl here. You know, keeping your development toolbox current is key to creating today's highly scalable applications. With Oracle Cloud, you get cloud-native microservices that leverage containers, Kubernetes, and serverless technologies. And right now, you can try a free self-guided lab to learn how to build microservices on Oracle Cloud infrastructure at your own pace. Visit oracle.com slash dotnet rocks. That's oracle.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And uh, boy, howdy, it's cold. <laughs> well, it'll be January when this is out, so presumably it'll be cold. We'll, we'll see what happens. We, you know, weather is wacky these days. Well, it's so cold right now, your room is purple. Yeah, well, that's 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 very carefully orchestrated lighting. We, we yeah. now have a video system so we can see each other while we record, which is quite luxurious after mm. 15 years of just staring at a wall and hearing your voice in my head. Oh, is that what you did? Yeah. What did you do? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, it's really cold in Vancouver, and it's it's cold in Connecticut. But, but just normal cold white. in in, 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 in Yeah, in, it's not below freezing, which it is where you are. Yeah. Well, I went searching for some New Year's gadgets, Uh-oh. and I found something I don't know if you know about, but you know, you are the toy boy, so it's I true. wouldn't put it past you. Yeah. So let's roll the crazy music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, I presume not a framework. Not a framework. This is Amazon Astro. Oh, no. It's a robot. It's a household robot. Right. It's got wheels. It drives around. You can control it. It maps the environment. It doesn't fall downstairs. It goes around your kitty cat and your doggy dog. And uh, you can drive it remotely and take a look anywhere in your house. You can like, go right up to the stove to make sure that you turned the burner off before you left. You saw the little telescoping camera that comes out of it? Because that's not yeah. creepy at all. Yeah. Not okay. creepy at all. <laughs> it reminds me of the, um, what, what was it, the thing that uh, Steve Smith had? Where he was, he had a little a little scooter on wheels with a a pole and an iPad on top. It was like telepresence was a big yeah, thing yeah. for a while. Hanselman did that in in into uh, Microsoft at one point too, right? Yeah, it's like a yeah. it's like a Segway met an iPad. <laughs> yeah. So the the idea is you could send this thing into meetings and there'd be an iPad where your face would be, and yeah. you know, or you and, know. Least, and you could move around. I mean, the only problem is it's Amazon, and Amazon's kind of become the new, like the new Microsoft of the '90s, right? Like they're kind of everywhere and into everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least it's not. I don't know if you saw this couple. It was like a year or two ago that Ring had made like a little flying drone for inside your house. Like it was completely dystopic. That's right? crazy. The Amazon drone that flies around your house to talk to you about stuff. But it was like while you're out, you could fly it around your inside of your house and see what's going on. Now it's like okay, well if that's not good enough. You have one with wheels. This is the annoying Amazon experience I have on a regular basis. Alexa, what's the weather today? She tells me the weather, and then she says, By the way, I can order 100 pounds of Christmas cards for you if you just say so. Would you like to order? And then all of these ads, essentially, for things that I could buy and things that she could do for me. 
And yeah, so I don't, I wouldn't trust the robot uh, or a drone. I don't know, but you know, and not only that, but guess how much this thing costs? Uh, a $1, lot, thousand dollars. Oh, and you have to go on a waiting list for the privilege to order it. It doesn't even make coffee. Yeah, well, right. It, it doesn't have an arm. All it has is it has cameras. no arms. Yeah, right. So now, if it had an arm and it could push buttons, now not, I might be in, interested. Huh? Okay, if it'll bring, I might be interested. If it'll yeah, bring you I, a coffee. But uh, well, we uh, I sleep on the top floor and the coffee's on the bottom floor. I don't know about that, but at least I could wake up and roll over and pick up my phone and have it push the button, and I could see that it pushed the button because the blinky light goes this, red. This is a solvable problem, you know. Yes, I know. It's called a coffee alarm. Yes, I know. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's what I got. Awesome. Uh, what do you got? What do I got? I got a comment on the show 1753, which is the one we did with Mika Dumont uh, back in 2021, talking about Studio 2022 and some productivity stuff. And and uh, I think what came up in that conversation was uh, Copilot. Oh, right. Right. And just, yeah. you know, they, they that, at that time, that was... Speaking of know, creepy. Yeah, August of last year. When when GitHub had first rolled out Copilot, everybody's freaking out about the developers' jobs are going away. We've automated ourselves out of existence, which is right. absurd. But um, John Peel has this great comment, sort of an approach on it. He says, I haven't tried Copilot yet, but I'm sure I will. But I do have a thought about AI being able to write code. And I can tell you that I'm not worried for my job at all. Mm. It might be able to write some code, but it'll never know what code to actually write. It might be useful with some suggestions like, it looks like you're trying to implement a bubble sort. Which the next statement is, now stop that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, however, something I have thought about uh, would be AI created code based on human written unit tests. Yeah. If a developer could just write the required unit tests, then the AI would worry about whether to refactor them or not I and mean, keep them right. in the green. Um, It'd be nice to have an AI coder that I could tell, just go do this go decorate all of my classes with these attributes or whatever well it made me think do you remember a tool we talked about years ago called cucumber yeah yeah so that was a human readable testing language yeah, a dsl you're, you're totally right right it it, yeah. it was a, you write you write in english your intent for testing yeah. if you think about what copilot and uh, all all these gpt3 tools do it's like writing in english the intent and yeah. have the AI generate the tests, and more relevantly, as the code changes, make sure the tests are still relevant. Like mm. you, you could tie those two things together, which I, th I thought was a pretty cool idea. Yeah, it, it, you know, just taking Cucumber to the next level entirely, where it's not just the you have assertions that are, are testable, but that you can actually go in deeper into that. Mm. So. Uh, John goes uh, on to say, uh, and I've sort of parsed some things here that I'm interested in people's thoughts on this, uh, to force down, you know, good unit tests. But I would actually argue to just write good tests in general as often as possible, uh, really by getting you to express what your intent of the code is in the first place. Yep. Right. It's almost you could do it. This would be this would be an AI driven TDD process almost. Hmm. Anyway, I thought it was a cool idea, John. Uh, thank you so much for your comment. And a copy of Music Kobai is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Kobai, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks as we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Kobai. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell and I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. My secretary, Astro, will deliver it to me by hand. 
or by wheel, I guess. There was the there was not. the there was the Boston Dynamics spot robot that had the oh, four God, legged things. Are things. Creepy. Yeah, but that one at least had an arm that was in the position of a head. So you weren't sure whether you should be looking at that or something else, but it it could like load dishwasher the dishwasher and throw things away. But that thing is more like thirty thousand dollars. When you talk about Boston Dynamics, I think of like the gas powered dogs. Yes, the the, the big mule, big dog. The animal facsimiles that you know picture huh. a dog running around the yard, but with a <laughs> but it's a robot. <laughs> it but, sounds like a lawnmower. <laughs> no, but you got to catch up with the current version of Atlas. That is a humanoid shaped robot that can do flipping parkour. Like, okay. oh no, Boston Dynamics is well on their way to being Skynet. They're doing a fine job. They are doing a fine job. <laughs> and it's only two hours away from, from me. So, you know, you the, it'll take them that long at least to, uh, to get to me. Anywho, let's bring on our esteemed guest today, Oleg Friedman. And we're talking about uh, .NET for Startups. Oleg is the founder and CTO of Verb Data. At Verb, his mission is to help others create amazing customer data experiences without the pain he's had to suffer dozens of times over. Oleg founded his first company while in high school. And his, but hey, so did I. I sold itching powder. Nice. Let me tell you how that went. Um, in high school. And he's also built and sold multiple tech businesses since then. He's an expert in bringing SaaS applications, software as a service, to market that meet customer demands on day one. Welcome, Oleg. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. You're I right. did poke around on Verb Data, and you let off with the right statement, making dashboards easy on your SaaS platform. It's like, because dashboards are never easy. Yeah, Dashboards suck dashboards in general. Suck. They're the worst thing to build. <laughs> and everybody wants one, except they That's don't exactly want the right. one you made. They want Speaking something else. Speaking of dashboards, when I logged into Zencaster and Chrome today, I got a blank screen, and the title was Zencaster Dashboard. Oh, blank, Useful. blank screen. Had to go to Edge for it to work. Far out. There's a there's a uh, a, a, a customer testimonial uh, for uh, Zencaster. I'm already writing an email to see how I can help them out. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, spend enough time with different startups as the sort of uh, uh, limited partner to an investment group where my job is make founders cry, and I'm good at it. And uh, <laughs> and fire Deadwood. <laughs> Get Deadwood and, fired. You know, hanging out in the valley, it's all Amazon and Python. How do you end up on .NET? Uh, you know, I started pre.NET. My very first uh, attempt at programming was... Way back when, I picked up a Visual Basic. I think it was Visual Basic four in twenty one days. Wow! Finished it in like four days. <laughs> decided that uh, that was going to be what I wanted to do. Um, so I've been I've been in the Microsoft realm for a very long time. I don't know. I've never. I, I didn't start in Linux. I, I think honestly, most of these things are where you first started, right? Yeah, and yeah. Continuation of where you're comfortable. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah. See, I, I also think people don't set out to start a business. They're tinkering with code and something reveals itself and they get excited, which means they were working the tool they're comfortable with first. I, I think that's exactly right. I think the majority of, at least in my personal experience and many of those that I've talked to, you find a problem, you figure out how to solve it and you solve it with the tools that you are most comfortable and know best. I happen to know Microsoft at the time. Right. Um, 
But that said, along the way, I've built at this point four successful businesses, sold three of them, uh, and and all of those were based entirely on Microsoft frameworks, mm-hmm. and been able to work with some really awesome people along the way that also knew Microsoft. But you know what's great about where.net not so much of where it started but where it has ended up right. is that it is so um willing to work with others or plays nice with others i should say yeah that you know we get we have teams uh you know now at verb we have .net we have react we're playing around with a ton of you know all three of the major cloud providers right. across uh a dozen different data systems or database engines um all you know, backended by .NET six. Because why would you use anything else, really? Well, honestly, I, you know, it's a lot of it is. I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, well, Python or Ruby or you know whatever," and it's the trendy framework of the week. Um, yeah. And for me, Microsoft has simply stood the test of time. It's mm-hmm. it survived, and it's an enterprise framework on day one. Rather than having to, if we get successful, we're going to have to rewrite this. That's exactly right. I was yeah. about to say, without having to replatform, once you get enough scale, you know, once you get more than six people using your platform, you don't have to rebuild it again. Not that you um, cannot, not that you're not able to write non-scalable.net because I've certainly done that. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Do you find you still have to defend? .NET from people whose last experience of the word .NET was in, you know, the early 2000s. Absolutely. Um, including, you know, investors or potential investors, including, um, you know, partners that we talk to who I don't ever have to defend it from are potential clients. Yeah. Um, they because lie. honestly, Fine. couldn't care less. Well, they couldn't care less. But then I will also say a lot of them hear .NET and think enterprise instead right. of thinking Reliable. startup. That's exactly right. Oh, the, and they also think Microsoft only. You know, it was a Windows platform at first, and now it's completely everywhere. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, our, our deployments are containerized. We're deploying into all the different clouds, all on Linux uh, OSs. I think the the hard part on day one is always licensing mm. and, you know, the presumed cost of working in Microsoft, which all of those barriers are now gone. Yeah. I think now it's a mentality problem of everybody's still thinking that they all exist, right? right. Oh, I have to use SQL Server, which is insanely expensive. I yeah. have to use, you know, oh, uh, Microsoft is my OS, so I'm facing, paying for a license. Well, none of that is actually true anymore. So yeah. there's free versions of everything. You yeah. don't have to deploy in Windows. And that's, to me, I think that the real one these days, especially if you're using modern.net, is like you go into the cloud in Linux. You do not go into the cloud in the window, in a Windows instance. Mm. Absolutely, and, and you know if you're if you're doing the and you've done this enough times that you're not doing the I I'm sitting on a bag of rice that is also my meal kind of budget of a startup <laughs> where the cost of the instance would really matter. Yeah, but that's what does matter for a startup, right? Mm-hmm. And even truthfully, even Verb Verb started. Dave and I were bootstrapping it. My my CEO partner Dave, he and I bootstrapped this thing. Right, we're we're spending our own money and making a platform that we think others will use. The less we spend to get it up and running, the the more we have to do cool things and to hire people and to spend on a designer to make it look pretty and to spend on front end dev to actually make it function pretty. And so, you know, it cost absolutely matters. Um, so anybody stuck in that same mentality of of back in the day when dollars mattered, uh, 
the deployment dollars matter, right? And IDE costs and data costs and all that. Um, you know, that that's simply a somebody who's not not reading up on what .NET is these days. Right. What well, what about the hiring side? You know, most startup culture people aren't necessarily .NET people, and most .NET people aren't necessarily startup culture. Yeah, it, you know, I think a lot of that is that that's a true statement. I think in in the general sense, I think. It is uh, the lines blur a lot more when you get into regionality. I think East Coast, it's a lot easier to hire uh, great .NET developers who are also startup focused, have either worked at startups, run businesses that are uh, of their own that are that were .NET based. Um, it, you know, Europe, very different story than the U.S. and and truthfully, internationally in general. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're in the West Coast and you're in, uh, you know, trying to hire, although then again, you go a little farther north and you're in Seattle and all of a sudden you're in Microsoft country. Yeah, right? yeah. And Vancouver, too. Very .NET friendly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's got to be it's super regional and also doesn't matter. You dev can work, live anywhere, work anywhere if they're if they're interested in the problem. Right. So it, verb data, you're building dashboards in one of the web stacks. So I don't know which one do you like. We love React. Um we have a fantastic team of six front-end developers focused purely on React. We've had the fortune of working with a lot of this crew for, for many years. Um, previous companies? Them, previous companies. And uh, due to COVID, uh, a after the sale of one of our companies, these guys went to full-time to that business. Um, due to COVID, they became available on the market again. Oh, uh, which mm, uh, happens. Know, Fortunate, unfortunate. Hey, that's just the way the the world turns, and we were able to pick up uh, the majority of the crew again, uh, bring the band back together, and, and start building again uh, some great front end stuff. So it, it does say our, something about you that people want to be involved in the next business you're involved into. Yeah, As someone who's worked a lot that. of different startups, <laughs> like I notice when this, you know, that person, you know, I was just at a meeting where I'm like, I've done three companies with that guy. I've done two companies with that guy. It's like, that's a sign of a group of people who like working together, who the outcomes were positive enough. It's like, let's go do that again. Yeah. The outcomes and, and hopefully the middles, right? Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta enjoy the the day to day and you gotta be working on, on cool stuff. I've had the the privilege of working with the majority of the same team. And my, my founder is now my founder for a second business in a row. And mm -hmm. I've worked with him at three businesses, four businesses in a but row it, now. And I think this is oh. the fun part for a .NET developer made only done traditional .NET development too. It's like, hey, you know what's cool about startup? It's pretty greenfield. Like mm -hmm. we're making new yep. things. Do you want to be a part of that? Or do you live in your legacy life? Like I, it's almost like, hey, take a couple of years, try this. And then, you know, mm -hmm. It's not like there's a lack of opportunities for .NET developers. There's, we're always outnumbered by the need. But yeah. this would be a real fun ride for someone who's never tried that before. Absolutely. And I think I think what's great about any startup is it is a startup, right? You are starting from zero. Yeah. You get to choose whatever, or even if it's chosen kind of for you and you join a team that is, you know, you're, you're a your young way. .NET developer and... But as long as you're starting from scratch, it almost forces you to pick up the latest technology, right? Yeah. If your last business was uh, legacied into, you know, .NET Core, and it's really hard to upgrade to five and then to six. Well, if you join a startup, they're most hopefully they're already using six. Oh, yeah. They're already, or at least you know, thinking about upgrading from five to six, right? I think about the the the, the pipeline parts, like oh no, and this is the deployment mechanism we wanted. We're going to try this, mm -hmm. you know. 
every time you get a chance to set up new here, to the thing is like, well, you know, we struggle with that pipeline. I wonder if we can make a better one. What's out there? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we've we've changed uh, providers for ancillary services pretty much every time. Mm -hmm. Not all, obviously, not not carte blanche, but but the majority every single time because you keep the ones you loved and you say there's got to be something better. And you try to do that midstream too, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, but it's harder. much easier. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's only so many opportunities to do, to do all, to move all of those pieces around and it is plumbing. So it's kind of like you want to pick it, set it, forget it. But right. when you get a chance to build a new one, you want to build a better one. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, to dig out the foundation and put in a new one. Uh, absolutely. Although that said, I've re re architected, uh, several times over on many platforms that we've built before, because sometimes you just say, you know what, it's great, but it's gotta be greater. Yeah. Uh, right. It didn't, you know, we didn't architect it perfectly on day one to bit fit the business that we have today. Mm. And so, but I, I do love that.net lets you do that. You preserve what you have or mm. what you need and you build again around it. So had a lot of success doing that as well. Yeah. It's good fun. And it's interesting to hear. I mean, now I know why your dashboards look good. You have a lot of UX people. <laughs> we we absolutely do. Yeah, we have we have we our our back end team is far outnumbered by our front end team. But um, but that's mainly because a lot of our back end stuff, you know, we build an integration into whatever the the next data source is, and then we move on to the next one. Whereas our front end team, you, there's never a shortage of pretty charts to draw. Yeah, but there's also never a shortage of new front end frameworks that we need to build SDKs for, or uh, you know, there's there's a lot for them to do continuously. And we have one thing is every business I've ever started, we have somebody, usually me, uh, focused on the back end architecture, yeah. and we have a product person focused on customer driven design and development. Um, so. What I build is what the customer wants, what the product team tells me. And in my case, uh, Dave, our CEO, is also our head of product. And he's tasked with figuring out what the actual market need is uh, mm -hmm. and working with our front-end designers to make it actually happen, prototyped, wireframe, then prototyped. And then we get handed off that work onto the back-end team where our job is to, to make it function. That's the, the general cadence. And you have hinted another aspect of startup, which is that most people wear multiple hats. Like... That, that's mm -hmm. got to be something that people like too. Like you, when you join a team like that, the fact that you have any other expertise or interests and so forth is generally grabbed onto. It's like, you should run with that. We could use that skill. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to be able to hire a person for it. So right now it's you one day a week. I, yeah, my, my closet is, is, is full of hats. Uh, and, and so is everybody I've ever worked with, frankly, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have to be able to figure out the need fill it with a with a skill but then also um prove that that skill or that that function right that new thing that we need to especially if it's something we need to invest in um or re-architect for or whatever prove that that it's actually going to be long-term beneficial um, right our view at verb and, and at most of my previous startups uh, i can't say all because this is a learned and acquired skill um mm -hmm. is to be ever forward thinking in terms of architecture mm -hmm. you have to plan for where the business is going to be, um, or at least not set yourself up for complete fail failure when you pivot. When are you taking investment these days? Like, do you hold off as long as possible? Do you take money before you start? Like, how are you feeling about that? I, you know, Verb, if, if I was starting, if this was my very first startup, I would hold off for as long as possible 
truthfully. Um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of bootstrapping, proving mm-hmm. market fit. Um, this is, Verb was not our first go. We took a pre-seed round uh, very early on and used that to springboard into funding the front end team, building that up, uh, funding a lot of market research, funding the initial MVP build. And we actually just closed our seed round, which will help us now fund not not only the product build, but now the marketing, the sales, the, you know, all of the necessary stuff to actually sell the product. But you, yeah, and you also have a track history of spending investors' money well, because they're, they're coming back to you again, right? Like, that's, that's, that's when I'm talking to newbies, it's like, we don't trust you with our money. You have no evidence that you're good with it. Right. And and you, and you do things differently. And it's also a real strong, we'll end up taking a larger amount of the company to manage that as opposed to build as much of this you can and validate for us as much of the product as possible and that there's a customer fit before you take our money. Because that raises our confidence in you. Yeah, do you- absolutely. I mean, you know, equity is a definite trade-off. The the more you bootstrap, the less you'll, you'll uh, give away. Yeah. That said, there there is a fine line there, right? Because at some point, you could bootstrap forever and not reach the critical mass you need to prove to only give away, you know, some much smaller amount of equity that you think you're going to want or need. But you know, in the end, 100 percent of zero is still zero. Yeah. So, but but um, but waiting so long that you slow down deliverables that you can't get the features exactly you need right. that you lose the opportunity space too. Like it is a, it is a dance. Like there's no obvious it, case. But the cloud has, has made things way easier. You can go a lot further for a lot less money these days. You absolutely can. I mean, uh, when we ran Onesis, which was an online ordering business for restaurants, I I shudder at what our rack space bill was. Uh, you know, uh, I spend more, I spent more per month than I do per year right now. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's very much possible to build a scalable business in the cloud today than it ever was. Thus letting more importantly, letting startups focus on spending the money in the right way. And so if, mm-hmm. you know, right now, truthfully, people best investment ever, the more people, the more minds you can get into a project, the more people you can get confident in your code base, the the better your support is, the better your scaling is, the better your ability to go on vacation and not feel like the world has ended, right? I mean- Vacations for startups? What crazy language I mean, is that? Yeah, I mean, know? it kind of occurs to me, it takes a certain kind of an iron stomach to, to want to be a startup and to want to do a startup. Like I imagine you're probably not taking a salary, right, from any investor capital. You say you bootstrapped it so- you probably had to save up enough money to live on, let alone pay people. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's like a risky thing. You have to be able to stomach that. It, it is an absolute risky thing. It's it's a lot easier. You know, I'm not going to pretend it was uh, it, it was it was certainly easier when we were in college building and scaling our first business than it would be today to, you know, bootstrap from scratch, having never done this before. Right. Um, so for sure, I mean, you know, life is, is a, a bunch of building blocks, right? You're building on top of stuff that you've done previously. And I've, uh, you know, had the the luxury of being able to do this several times over that said, I mean, you know, there, there's no shortage of people wanting to do startups that I, that I will say, um, I trying to, I don't know if the mentality of a .NET developer by default is startup 
but there are certainly a lot of .NET developers who are willing to to do that, to put in those hours, to sacrifice, to, um, I, you know, it, it tends to be the more, by default, it tends to be more, the more trendy mm-hmm. frameworks yeah. where people, because that's where the, the money is, right? You, you hear the buzzword, you go, oh, I'm going to go build a thing around that or in that. But the ones that, that last, the ones that tend to grow big um, are ones with uh, conviction around them, the ones that last longer. So. Mm-hmm. And gentlemen, I need to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. You know, keeping your development toolbox current is key to creating today's highly scalable applications. With Oracle Cloud, you get cloud-native microservices that leverage containers, Kubernetes, and serverless technologies. And right now, you can try a free self-guided lab to learn how to build microservices on Oracle Cloud infrastructure at your own pace. Visit oracle.com slash dotnet rocks. That's oracle.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Early bird discount for NDC Porto ends February 1st. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Where? Yeah, right over there. Uh, talking to Oleg Freeman about uh, verb data and startups in general. And certainly, you know, the people cost, which is the true sunk cost, too. Like, the money you pay to people, you're not getting back. You know, g- making sure they're working on the right thing and, and moving the ball forward. Uh, all very challenging. Are you leveraging any of the startup stuff that Microsoft does, the Azure for startups or GrowthX or anything like that? Uh, we have not at Verb, uh, not yet at least. Um, they've changed that platform a lot yeah. um, over the years. So both to the benefit of funded startups and to the disbenefit, I think, of of true, you know, BizSpark was was definitely a, a much BizSpark more- BizSpark was super generous. Yes, like pretty, very much arguably so. too generous. Like you could you could squeeze a lot out of them back in mm-hmm. the early days. True story. Yeah, um, but I think I think there have been for all the losses on the bit from BizSpark to what is it Microsoft for startups now or whatever yeah. it is Azure for um, startups Azure for startups. I, I think there is still they've they've lowered the cost of everything else, right? So you mm-hmm. don't get as much to to they don't. Uh, you don't, you know, you might not get Microsoft or uh, Visual Studio for free, but now there's a free version of Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code or whatever you want to use. Um, you may not have to pay for, or you might not get the funding for SQL Server, but now SQL Server is can be free. So yeah, they, not that they, you need SQL Server, like yeah, absolutely not. No. A, right? I mean, hell, if if you really want a relational database that runs well in Azure, use Postgres. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and Verb is not based on SQL Server. We're actually Mongo based uh, for our metadata. Yeah, which that that's because the kind of data you're storing isn't relational, right? It's right. like here, hold this goo for me. Here's a tag for it. Give yeah. me that goo with this tag. Thanks. That's, right? that's exactly right. That's <laughs> right. And there's and so there's just become so many different ways to solve problems. The the Microsoft startup programs are still really good uh, once you get funding. Um, mm. We we plan on reinvestigating now that we've closed our seed round, right? Uh, who wouldn't want to benefit from a little bit of help? But um, they've also got the what, growth X accelerators and stuff. But I think you're not a good candidate for an accelerator. You're not a newbie. That's that's exactly right. I mean, and accelerators work really well. I've uh, previous to to Verb, uh, Dave and I ran a, a company called Prototype One, which was a software development agency for for startups, for MVPs, mm. uh, focused mainly on prototyping. And we partnered with a lot of accelerators um, to help their businesses. And and those do really well if you don't, it, it helps um, reduce some of that risk that we talked about earlier, right? Sure. Um, you get a lot of that support. You get to be, you get to pick the brains of people who have done it before. So there's a ton of benefit to accelerators. So no, no knocking those in any way. Mm. Um, and there's some fantastic ones all around the country, especially the local ones. Uh, you know, there's the big ones, of course, but but some of the local city sponsored ones, uh, regionally sponsored ones, mm-hmm. those are those are often best because they they're not in it to to take a chunk of your company, um, and they're still providing. They're they're trying to grow startups in their area. That's exactly right, and they're providing you know very versed people to be of uh, assistance, and those people are vested in your interest, not but not from an equity stake. Yeah. And um, I, I have made it a hobby to explore different uh, startup culture areas uh, to the point where uh, a couple of us went to Yakutsk, Russia ah. to f- <laughs> and found a great little startup culture there in the middle of Siberia, right? Like literally freezing cold, like, uh, but it was finance, the university, government participation, mm-hmm. business community participation. You know, they, those were the pieces that that as long as those folks were all interested in creating a startup culture, so that you were training new devs, that you had some forms of funding, you had government support and some tax optimizations and things like that that encouraged investment. Like you could put the pieces together. It didn't matter where you were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm actually based out of Cleveland. I kind of grew up here, and and Cleveland has a fantastic um, growing because it was. It was not the biggest to start, but a uh, growing startup scene, um, you know, that it, it's not going to uh, surpass Silicon Valley anytime soon. Yeah, but but, it, but you Silicon know Valley is almost imploding under its own weight. It's I, that's absolutely so right. expensive. Yeah. Because and, it's, I, and double in this, you know, the pandemic forced us all to just take remote seriously. And suddenly there's just no justification for living in Menlo Park. And they and the cost and effort to be in that one location for what? Truthfully, nowhere in in, in many cities. I actually, when we founded Verb, uh, Dave and I were both in Boston. Uh, Dave is still there. I, I moved back here to Cleveland for for family reasons, and um, you know, one of them is cost of living. There, there's there's a lot that you could do now remote. I mean, plus kielbasa. Who, who, I mean, well, yeah, of course. That <laughs> <laughs> would bring me back to Cleveland. <laughs> not the rock for and roll hall of fame for, for yeah, reason, come no 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 yeah we're 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 known for a few things but <laughs> hang out uh, with michael simon cook some meat anyway i digress uh, oh, i'm, I'm hungry no, it, apparently 
You're making me hungry now. <laughs> Big surprise that I'm hungry. But you know, they, this, there's an interesting aspect of this quality of life part in startup culture now, too, right? You're working on stuff that means something to you. You're living in a place you want to live in. You're, you know, the tools are now serving you better to be able to do that. Like that was not, I, I think of the dot com boom startup culture, that whole sleeping under the desk, we're all in the same room thing. Mm. And I, I mean, I think I remember it fondly, and I think it might be Stockholm syndrome. Like, I literally am misremembering it. Oh, it's awesome. Because <laughs> this seems better, right? This new way, what you're describing, Oleg, this seems so much more sane. It It, it is better, to be honest. And I think we've been remote for a very long time. Um, we don't look at time zones the same way but now i think the rest of the world is is kind of catching up and thinking about where i physically am versus where i work are two completely different things and i can accomplish the same amount probably more frankly right um, right or at least i can do it i even if it is the same amount forgetting the more part because I'm, I'm not implying that people need to be working more because they are remote but they can do it on their own time and I think more and more employers are starting to believe that one, believe in their employees to go accomplish the work that they were hired to do, which is, you know, standard. And, but more importantly, that they can do it at times that are convenient for them. Um, you know, I've got two little children. I have to, you know, spend time with them, but I also have to help, you know, do this, that, and the other when it call, when it's called for. And for me to be able to pause, go do that work and then be able to come right back and, do my actual work, um, you know, when I need to, and, and whether that's at 9am or to 5pm or whether that's nine to, you know, four and then from seven to 12 or whatever it is, I can do all of those. Things. No, once the kids are down, you know, you've gotten them into bed, you hear that, then you get that peaceful moment and sure enough, your head rattles up and you start writing code again. Yeah. You think, but by that point you're so exhausted. Well, there is that you <laughs> right? need to be rested. There's a book called the powerful engagement. Uh, it's a number of years old. I've read it ages ago, and I reference it every so often. But it, its whole, the TLDR is you're managing energy, not time. Right. And so the trick is how do you recharge your batteries? Because that real productive moment, they're relatively short. So the trick is to set yourself up to get to those productive moments. And, and the rest of the time is recharging to get back to them. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it's when you when you're in a startup culture part of it is you your time revolves around not only building the business but more importantly what you're meeting customer needs right when you only have a handful of customers the best thing about those customers is that they are very involved in the business yeah. um for better right? or worse they, for well yeah exactly well you, it's always for better it's just in terms of time it's always for worse right because well, they're the ones that they're the ones that say, hey, I found a bug. Well, yeah, okay, I'll go fix it right now because you're going into, you're literally walking into a presentation and you need this thing working. And if your dashboard doesn't render, you know, we've all got a problem. So sure, I will literally drop everything I've got. But, but then, customers also want their feature, not the feature that is going to benefit you. Yeah. yeah you do have to balance off the, I'm, I'm at one point, at some point, I'm just a custom shop for these guys. I need to generalize the things they want. That, that's absolutely right. And I, I think you, you hit on uh, the most important there is generalization. And in part, 
learning to say no, or at least training your customer to say, this will happen in this, you know, generalized form, but you can have it, you know, yeah, that's if you a, want to be- That's a V next feature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but what we do is we, we partner with a lot of our customers and say, we don't build something until somebody wants it but we're not going to build it by ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. We're not just going to go sit in a room and go code against this thing and hope what we spit out on the other end is good. So if you want this feature and you really feel like it's going to help your business and we feel like it's going to help ours, let's sit down together. Let's make sure we prototype it properly. Let's make sure we spec it. And let's make sure you give us the proper credentialing and then time on your end to validate that we built it correctly. Because otherwise... You know, nobody's going to be happy in the end. No, no. Got and I appreciate that you want to commit from the customer. It has to cost the customer something too. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just going to spit out ideas all day long, whether they use it or not. But if you put some overhead to it, they have to take it seriously. Yeah. And when you work with a lot of startups like we do, or at least, uh, you know, very early stage companies, time is their most expensive asset. Mm-hmm. And so when you ask them to commit time, that's better getting them to commit the time is better than to get than getting them to commit money. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Right, because for the extra couple hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever you're going to charge them in uh, one-off kind of development fees, that's not going to benefit your our business any, right? Because that's not a recurring revenue and and kind of. But it's but when they commit their time, everybody wins. We get a better feature; they get to use a better feature. Mm. Yeah, I also think there's an angle. Well, tell me this: the kind of customers that you have in these early stages are they also are they small companies, or are they like a guy in a bigger company who's trying to solve a hard problem? Or what does that look like? What's motivating them? Yeah, it's so our our current customer base is a mixed bag, but very early on, it was um, smaller companies either. Pre-seed, seed, one of our beta customers was a Series A. But at that Series A, it was that one guy who had a project that needed to be done on a timeline that uh, he didn't have the resources to do it in and was looking for, you know, Verb provides essentially a developer tool that makes developers work less, um, which in my opinion is the best kind of tool, right? The one that makes you... Oh, it, sure. It's yeah, not you, like any guys, of us were getting to the bottom of our to-do list, right? That's exactly right. You guys started talking about the uh, Alexa with the coffee machine, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, any coffee machine that you don't have to go, you know, I love my one-touch Jura. It makes fantastic coffee, yeah. but it's one touch, right? I push one button and it does the thing. So that's how we look at Verb. It's a uh, it's a developer tool that automates a lot of the 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 mechanics of setting up a data pipeline, of setting up a data lake, setting up a data warehouse, then writing the visualizations, making them look pretty, making them fit into your application. Um, and so a lot of our customers are looking for to, to offload that. But that's actually becoming a pretty common trend in general in programming, right? Mm-hmm. In, in software development. I want to focus on what I am great at and make somebody else go do the things that they're great at, but that I don't want to do. Yeah. Nobody wants to build dashboards. No, yeah. No, no. Everybody likes to build a dashboard for like the first hour. Yeah. The, the moment it gets, it, suddenly you hit this point where you understand the complexity of what you're trying to build. And you're like, why did I say yes to this? Uh, you know, the, the first dashboard is really easy to get out, right? It's very easy to put together some you know, pie chart and some bar charts and a table and use some pretty, you know, front end library. Yeah, you and said you pie figure, chart, you already know you're off the wrong, you're on the wrong path. Well, yeah. <laughs> All but, pie charts are bad. 
chart. Donut chart. Donut chart. I meant donut. Um, you put a hole in it, it's still a pie chart. It's still bad. If it's got a hole in it. Okay, anyway. Um, it's, it's easy to make that first one. What it's hard to do is make that first one work for all of your customers at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, right? Scale is the enemy of dashboards. Scale is the enemy of most development, right? And so when you don't think about scale on day one, um, you're going to have a bad time. And that bad time is going to come at the worst time. It's when you know, you're going to have an absolute need and all of your customers need to see their data at that exact moment. You know, Black Friday sale or whatever it might be. When your system goes down, nobody is happy. Um, and then you go, oh, well, I guess we should re-architect this. And you end up rebuilding dashboards, which I, you know, hand raise, I've done this a dozen times, mm-hmm. um, dozens of times. And, you know, we, Dave and I have together learned from our mistakes and, and built to scale on day one so that other developers don't have to think about building to scale on day one. Right. Yeah. So learn from all you're doing is creating a productizing pain. I, yeah, I had this pain. I would prefer you didn't have to have that pain. And for the low, low price of, you don't have to have this pain. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's you know we do we purchase other services that do similar things for us because we don't want to rebuild pain from others. Right? We're certainly not going to go and build our own subscription engine or our own. Um, These are solved problems. Solved problems. Right. And and we saw Verb was is solving a problem specifically for SaaS providers that was not solved before. Um, so we're, you know, we're not about to go compete with a BI tool like, you know, Power Tableau BI. or Looker yeah. or Power yeah. BI that's existed forever and does a fantastic job. Right. They're, those are great tools, but uh, those do not solve problems that actual SaaS businesses have in segmenting their data, in delivering very customizable and customized dashboards to each of their customers independently of uh you know what tenant they belong to so or dependent i should say on which tenant. no no you've definitely found an interesting niche in, in an area that's been worked on a lot and clearly gets you know needs to be served at some point there's going to be an acquirer right like i mean you've done this before do you i mean how do you even talk about that you know the, the way i talk about it is i don't build lifestyle businesses. I don't intend to pass this one down to my children and, right. and hope that they, you know, so for me, it's build the best business, scale it. If somebody's interested, they will come to us. Um, you know, that's how it's happened before. Um, I can only hope that that's how it'll happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, but most importantly, nobody's going to acquire a bad business, one that doesn't scale, one that doesn't have the right people on board, one that doesn't serve an actual need. Right. So, Focus number one is build the business. Acquisition is is a fantastic problem to have when it, you know, arises. But you, but you bring up a really salient point, which is that you build a business with the intent that it's valuable to others, not just as valuable to you. Yes. Right. To me, yes. the definition of a lifestyle business is you built a wrapper around yourself that keeps yourself entertained and presumably employed or paid, but not you know the value is only to you. That's the only measure you took. Well, and that's the short-term value too. But if you're really looking for long-term value, it's got to be valuable to others anyway. Otherwise, nobody's going to buy it. Well, yeah, you're you're making something that that has some value. But if only you can make it, then it's only valuable when you're in it. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly right. I think that's that's super key there because um, you know a mistake that 
I personally made very early on in my career was being the bearer of too much knowledge, right? right? Not hiring quickly enough for senior level positions that can spread that, not only the workload, but the knowledge mm. and, and being able to move as an entrepreneur. Yeah. You wear a bunch of hats, but eventually you got to start taking them off. Yeah. And if, if you can't hand that hat to somebody else and you have to hire and train for that, it's just another delay. Mm. It's just another hardship. Mm. Um, so having the, more senior people earlier on, um, while it is expensive, one, it brings a ton of value to your business, right? You, I instantly value a business with more senior engineers in it than one with less. Oh yeah, no. Um, the number of times I've done the due diligence and found out it was one guy, yeah. you know, in the end, everything is innovative in this business came from that one person. And it's easy to be that one guy, right? When when you have a technical founder mm -hmm. um, in a business, it's easy to want to continue to own it. It's, you know, it's 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 not even some you know mentality flaw or whatever. It's just I know it. I can just go do it myself. It'll yeah. be faster if I do it. Getting past that mindset, I think, is incredibly hard. And it, and frankly, it took me years to and and lots of mistakes to get past the I need to hand this off to somebody else because. I can't handle all of it mm -hmm. is uh, key and very hard to learn. Yeah. It's an old JP Morgan line, right? Nothing was more freeing than knowing I couldn't do it all myself. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, it's so the challenge always is you, you've got that working in the business, you're making things and then it's working on the business. Are we going in the right direction? Have, you know, have we built it in a way that is valuable? Is it going to have the right outcomes? Uh, do you have, obviously you have another founder. Are you the only two that sort of work on the business versus in the business? Like how much time do you get separate from those two? I, I just find a lot of folks just want to do the job. Like they, they, they're not really, the business part baffles them or does, is not yeah. interesting to them. It, well, I'll, I'll say if the business part isn't interesting, you've got, uh, if it's not interesting to your partner, you've got the wrong partner. Right. right? Um, but it's not going to be interesting to most of your staff. That's a true story. And long-term, absolutely. Uh, Short-term, if your first, if it's not interesting to your first hires, it's also a problem, yeah, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Because again, I think, I think this just comes down to, you know, a, a successful SaaS business, not a startup, but a true successful enterprise scale business requires dozens of people wearing, you know, only one or two hats each. The, until you're at that scale of people, but that means you've proven your business. That means you've scaled it. That means people want to buy what you're selling. Yeah. Until you've gone there, the people you're in hiring have to be bought in. We're, we're having trouble hiring, not only because everybody's having trouble hiring, mm -hmm. um, because we are looking for specific individuals, ones right. that are going to be invested um, and, and bought in and, and want to take that time because it's it's hard to to get uh you know a business to scale but i think i think it's very important who you found the business with mm -hmm. and being able to not have a ton of overlapping skills yeah the number of times i've had i've met a company four partners all have the same skill and you're like yeah there's at least three too many of you that's exactly right and and it's you're gonna butt heads you're going to each have an opinion um you know my my first business i started with uh, I was the tech uh, lead. We had a business lead and we had a operations lead. And, you know, everybody won if their vote was in their own department, 
right? If operations wanted to do something, and even if the two of us kind of disagreed, you know. But he's in charge operations of operations. Let him exactly. Do it. Yeah. Yep. And then we always had a rock paper. It's easy when you have three founders. You have a rock paper scissors clause yeah. in your contract, and <laughs> you really can settle uh, arguments that way. But, but the other part is you're both arguing over the same thing, ignoring something else that's equally as important, like yeah. a sales and marketing engine. That's exactly right. And and you, me being on the tech side, I don't pretend to know everything on the sales, marketing, you know, distribution side. Mm -hmm. That because. While I have dabbled in those things, that is not where I spend my day to day. Yeah, it doesn't make me um, happy. Yeah, it's exactly right. And um, being business minded is is great, but being um, aware of uh, where the business needs you to be focused is is also very important. Yeah. So I think I think it's important to find startup partners um, and investors that complement rather than overlap. Yeah, my, my advice lately on investment side is it's not the money. Money is available. It's the skills they're going to bring to the table. All right. It's like, yes. what are they going to do to help make that investment work as well? Besides just bring the money. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, skills, uh, connections, follow on. You know, there's so many things that matter from an investment partner uh, more so than money. Um because because you're right, money money is definitely available uh, pretty much anywhere at this point, right? Um, Verb has raised in Austin and Utah, in Cleveland and Boston, right? We, we've money is coming from all over the country, right? Um, but we're trying our best to bring in investors that bring something other than just the dollars to the table. Um, so that that's very key. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting aspect of of this evolving market. Uh, and again, we get back to the .NET side. Like, you must answer the "so why are you guys using .NET?" question well. Oh, the the why we're using .NET is truthfully all the things we talked about from the business yep. perspective because it makes it really easy to answer the business question. It scales. It's enterprise class. It uh, it it's a growing an expandable language that's portable. Um, there's constant additional development being done. I mean, think about how long it took him to get from .NET 5 to .NET 6, right? Blink and you would have right. missed an entire upgrade cycle. A year. Yeah. Well, um, and, and plus, if you just took your .NET 5 app and, and started running it in .NET 6, it went faster. It, it yep. absolutely did. I was going to say backward compatibility is another huge one, right? Verb, when yeah. we first started building Verb, .NET 5 was a thought in Microsoft's playbook. It didn't exist. We built in .NET Core. Right. right. Um, we upgraded to 5. We're almost done upgrading to 6. It'll be, you know, but that whole pro that whole upgrade process is just making sure your, you know, NuGet package is upgraded. Yeah. Everybody's, uh, you know, the, the process of getting from old to new is incredibly simple. Um, and, and so there's a lot of reasons to build in .NET. Yeah, there are definitely challenges. I'm not going to pretend that it's, you know, without its hurdles, but yeah. those but name, hurdles. Name me a platform you don't have hurdles on. <laughs> I was about to say, that's exactly right. <laughs> and, and that said, I think you get, what I have found is the talent in .NET is um, either excellent or learning to be excellent. Hmm. Whereas at many other platforms that I have uh, worked with people who have built on or, or been a part of companies that have built in other platforms, 
there's a lot of people hanging around in the middle, right? That learn <laughs> just enough, just enough to to say that they know whatever in on their resume, and they'll get hired because that's the current thing that everybody's hiring for. But there's not enough people, great people at that company to teach them how to be great. There's the online resources are, you know, yeah, I can watch a YouTube video, but it's not really going to teach me how to, you know, use dependency injection correctly. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, of, of senior people who have been in the Microsoft framework who have been willing to learn how to upgrade their skills yeah. in terms of following with the frameworks. Um, and I'm not, you know, many of these other languages simply haven't been around long enough. Yeah, yeah, or, sure. No, you don't have a problem learn. with a guy with 20 years of experience in Rust. That does, that's not a thing. But you can, uh, you can get at someone with 20 years in .NET. The question is, have they been doing .NET the same way for 20 years? Mm, it's, well, you know, one year, one year's experience repeated 20 times. Or are they actually using the new version of .NET? Right. Yeah. One thing I've looked at on resumes is how often people move from company to company. Yeah, and and too frequent is obviously scary. you know it's it's scary. I, I don't want to say not it's moving scary too, but not moving is scary as well. That's exactly yeah. right. If you if at a and I'm not knocking anybody who has been in their position for a long time, especially if they're up, you know if they're evolving. You have, to show, you have to show evolution, and if you can't show that, then it's going to be hard for you to join a startup. There's fantastic .NET positions available. Yeah, no. If I saw someone with 10 years in .NET in one company, I'd say, yeah, I'd want to know how many versions of .NET do you use? How many, how many times did the pipeline get revised? Like, what did you change in 10 years? Yeah, prove to me that you were more than just a couple buzzwords you wrote on there because I'm worried that you're still using, you know... It's still 2005 uh, in your world. Yeah, mm -hmm. ASP.NET and, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's fair. Yeah. Oleg, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? Uh, you do know, you have time? Verb, <laughs> yeah. um, Verb is is definitely growing. We've got a ton on our plate from adding um, additional data sources to adding geography-based mapping uh, tiles and, and visualizations. Um, we're, we're hiring. So please, anybody who is listening that has a, a great .NET background, especially in SaaS, love to, to chat. Um, we have more positions open than just those on our website. So welcome any and all takers. Every startup is a ride and it's got its ups and downs. We're, we're very much enjoying our up right now and hoping to keep it that way for as long as possible. Very cool. Well, uh, thanks for hanging out with us today. It's been really cool. It's my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. I wish you a lot of luck in the future. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. 
Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy.